just as there's post-traumatic stress, there's something called post-traumatic growth, which is that that at the other end of the population bell curve, there are people who are so highly resilient that even when they are exposed to something uh, potentially traumatic, they're able to grow stronger, perhaps not right away. In some cases, it takes six months, 12 months uh, you know, to see those impacts, but they get more centered. Um, they have a stronger sense of purpose, a stronger sense of motivation, greater clarity on how they want to spend their time in their life. And they, they describe coming out of those experiences stronger than they were uh, going into them. Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. I'm Ira Wolf. And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We're the voice of the most important conversations on the future of work, confronting business leaders and people today. And as you know by now, our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the ever-changing convergence of business, technology, and people. 53 years ago, the futurist Alvin Toffler and his wife published their seminal book, Future Shock. They got it somewhere here, in, in which they described a future where too much change would take place in too short a period of time. The Tofflers argued that society would undergo an enormous structural change, a revolution from an industrial society to a super industrial society. This change would simply overwhelm people. They argued that the accelerated rate of technological and social changes would leave people disconnected and suffering from shattering stress and disorientation, or future shock. Well, Toffler stated that the majority of social problems would ex that people would experience would be symptoms of this a future shock. Well, here we are in 2023. And it seems that a mind-blowing number of people are future shocked. Jason and I talk about it every week on Geek Skeezers and Googleization. I do a, a weekly series on Dig Life Deep about future shock and the incidence of disengagement, anxiety, stress, unhappiness, loneliness, mental illness, depression, and even suicide seems to be skyrocketing not only in the workplace, but in society. While admittedly talking about the future of work through the lens of technology and artificial intelligence is a whole lot more fun, well-being is and must be an integral part of the essential story about future of work. That's why today we are thrilled to welcome Gabriella Rosen-Kellerman to today's episode. Gabriella is the co-author of a brand new book, Tomorrow Mind, and her co-author is the none other than Dr. Marty Seligman. I don't read many books from cover to cover. I almost can count on one hand how many books I've read twice or listened to twice. Tomorrow Mind is one of those. So again, we're just thrilled to have her here. I'm also going to go out on a limb as a futurist and predict that some podcast hosts in 50 years from now will be introducing their show by talking about Tomorrow Mind, just as I today introduced this show talking about Future Shock. So Tomorrow Mind, in my opinion, is the antidote for Future Shock, and we can't wait to dig into 
uh, better ups research and solutions in just a few minutes. But first, here is today's perfect labor storm segment. On each episode, we focus on a disruptive, surprising, or worrisome trend that we believe you should know. So, did you know that 97% of companies in the US with more than 5,000 employees have an EAP or an employee assistance program? 75% of companies with 250 to 1,000 employees, so even smaller companies, have EAPs. But here's the thing. Industry-wide, the average utilization rate of an EAP runs about 3%. Many studies show that it's even lower than that. Part of the struggle is that while 93% of American employees have an EAP, only half of them know they do. And even if they are aware of their EAP, some employees do not use it because of the stigma, which we've talked about many times on Geek Skeezers and Googleization, the stigma against accessing mental health and related or admitting that there's a problem, uh, accessing the services that are available. Another problem is that EAP is linked to healthcare costs and utilization drives costs up. Therefore, the incentive for some organizations is managing costs, not managing care. So you're gonna to wanna to stick around because our guest today is going to share an innovative solution about how we should reimagine employee assistance programs. All right, I can't wait for that. And I've gotta to admit too, I've been waiting for an episode where we can cover what's been on everyone's minds recently, and that is photonic computing. That's right, folks. Now, listen, I promise, I promise you, Ira, there's a tie-in here with Future Shock and what you just shared and what we're going to discuss with Gabrielle in just a minute. I want to ask everyone a question. Did you know that we are rapidly approaching a wall where we will run out of space, physical space, on microchips for transistors? It's called Moore's Law. And because of the computational power that we're now using with complex AI models, it's becoming increasingly challenging for microchips to keep pace with the space that's needed for additional transistors. Well, just this past week at MIT, they discovered a solution. It's called photonic computing. And it's where they use photons and light particles to perform computations instead of just the transistors themselves. So in short, humans aren't the only ones struggling with future shock, Ira. It turns out even our computers are kind of struggling to keep pace too in some, some kind of odd way. So how do we overcome future shock and get our minds ready for tomorrow? That's what we're going to discuss today with one of the authors of Tomorrow Mind, Gabriella Kellerman. And she also heads up Better Labs and has served as Chief Innovation Officer and Chief Product Officer at BetterUp. So without further ado, Let's give a warm Googleization Nation welcome to today's guest and Tomorrow Mind author, Gabriella Rosen Keller. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, you too. And uh, so much to get into today. You know, obviously there, there's so much future shot going on as, as Ira talked about. But before we get into some of that, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and the work that you've done, and maybe some of the inspiration behind the book, Tomorrow Mind. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a, an MD by training, and I moved into technology about 15 years ago out of a desire to speed along innovation in the world of building well-being, building thriving, 
tools that allow us to achieve our potential on the one hand and avoid negative well-being outcomes on the other. And uh, about seven years ago, I started to turn my attention to the specific challenges of the workplace in this you know, very, very unique world of work that you all devote your time to helping people with, really understanding the, the very, very different forces that are at play today and pre from previous labor transformations. And how does that affect our mental well-being? In what ways are we prepared? In what ways are we not prepared? And at BetterUp, we've devoted about $20 million to researching the major challenges to our well-being at work. Our book, Tomorrow Mind, is a, a publication of many of the pieces of work that are harder to get at in individual journal articles and a broader perspective on what those challenges are, why they're so hard, and what are the core skills that we need to overcome them. So, Gabriella, there's so many stories here, and, and every chapter, uh, I said this before we went on the year, every chapter can literally be another episode, and we'd love to have you back. So many times as you want to come back, free to do that. But one of the, thing, one of the, the most interesting things, and I think I first heard this concept back in, uh, Jason, you can confirm this, I think Stephen Kotler, when we talked about flow, I think on his show, he talked about foraging. That, that yes. you know how our, our mind, our brain work. So I think that's a real it's it's a fascinating story. I think it's really integral. What because we look at going, you know, we forget that that industrialization is only two hundred years old, two centuries old, and that prior to that, for millennia, we, we had agriculture, and before that, we foraged. But we lost the skills. I mean, tomorrow mind is almost going back to yesterday mind. In, in some respects. So can you kind of fill in the blanks there a little bit, Gabriella? Yeah, absolutely. So we start from the premise that the only world of work that our minds are naturally adapted to is hunting and gathering. And there's, there's a lot we don't know about hunting and gathering, but there's enough we know that we can say, okay, this is why it feels so good, for example, to be creative. It's a joyous experience, and the fact that we feel joy when we're creative is part of why we're such a highly creative species and why we've been able to innovate our way to the top of the food chain, you know, certainly over other, over other animals, but even over other hominid species who were, who were contemporary with us when uh, we became, Homo sapiens became dominant. And, uh, and it also helps us think a little bit about what are the skills that we've moved away from that were so useful in, in that era that maybe now are, are going to be helpful again. And then think about some of the ways that the, the pace of life today, the nature of our work today is, is so very different from what we're adapted to be doing. So we start out in the forages world, we look at things like creativity, which fell out of use in some of the industrialization of, you know, the last couple hundred years, but now are important once again. And we look at other things that, you know, were an important part of, of hunting and gathering, for example, these really deep, lifelong, highly trusting relationships that were part of how we got our work done, that part of, in fact, a core part of how we created was collaboratively and, and fast forward today where we're working with a lot of other people. It's a social environment, it's a collaborative environment but they're biologically, everyone is a stranger to us. And that is just a very different cognitive project to build trust and to collaborate with, you know, biological strangers, by which I mean people we didn't grow up with 
people are not part of our, you know, immediate circle of 50 family members um, in our tribe, so to speak. So those are those challenges are real. And, and we need more to study them. And we've been accelerating some of that work. And we share in the book what we do know about how we can use behavioral science to overcome them. So, Gabriella, you mentioned creativity and collaboration, kind of relationship building. Those were really important in the, the hunting and gathering phase and that those are coming back and really important. Were there any other skills that kind of came out that are really important that we need to be refocusing on again that are important for the future of work? Yeah, so so one of the beautiful things about hunting and gathering, as best we understand, is there's a, a fair amount of fluidity of roles. So, yeah, some people did more of the hunting, some people did more of the gathering. Yeah, there would be weeks where all you did was pick berries, you know, but there was a lot of leisure time. There was a lot of a lot of different types of work to be done that everyone pitched in on. And so in a way, it was both about a kind of generalist mindset. And then it was also this adaptability, new terrain, new activities, new problems to be solved. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of the history of labor over the millennia of agriculture and then, you know, the, the industrial revolution was about increasing specialization. So our tasks became more and more specialized, more and more narrow. You know, a really gruesome illustration of this is a, a set of skeletons found in China of young women whose knees were all deformed because they spent their entire lives just grinding at a millstone. That was the, the single activity they did over and over and over and their bodies warped because of it. And that got even worse with the Industrial Revolution where you were just doing one small piece of one, you know, building one small piece of a machine of one specific machine and doing it over and over again. Now today, with the pace of change around us, there's a lot that, you know, we're, we're suddenly finding ourselves needing to uh, adopt to. And the skill set is much more of a generalist skill set because the sort of hard skills, you know, what would be the equivalent of grinding at that millstone, those expire so quickly now. You know, our, our colleague, John Seely Brown, has said it's gone from something like five years of a, of a half-life for those skills to 18 months is, is how they're expiring. And so they need to keep learning new skills to um, keep picking up new ways of, of supporting ourselves and being in our career. You know, that's, that's a new kind of agility, but it's much more akin to the fluidity of roles and the constant adaptation required in that hunter-gatherer era than anything we saw in, in early industrialization. So, Gabriella, what does that mean for job descriptions? Great question. And uh, you could think of it as if it takes, let's say, three to six months to hire someone from the time you decide you need the role to write the job description, post it, find the candidates, you know, de develop your pipeline, narrow it down, make the offer, et cetera, et cetera, three to six months. By the time they start, the job description six months outdated. Right. And so how do we think ahead to the potential jobs to be done in you know six months, 12 months, 18 months time? Um, and how do we think about these more core uh, ways of mindsets, ways of being that will enable us and, and the people we hire to flex in response to those new challenges? Those skills around resilience, agility, psychological flexibility, speed of learning. Those are some of the core pieces that every CHRO is looking for because of this exact problem. So, Gabriella, uh, one of the ways that uh, that I met 
Jason, which was uh, about three and a half years ago, like two months into the pandemic, put a call out. And I said, what happens when everybody comes back to work? Is there going to be, are people going to experience PTSD? And, and I think a lot of your, your work seems to be based on Dr. Seligman's you know, research you know, from the past with the army, but, but not looking at what caused PTSD, but why did some people survive? Mm-hmm. Why, why, do the, why do some people within with experiencing the same trauma actually come out as heroes and, and thrive? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. I mean, we're, we're not trying to go into a rabbit hole on like, oh, here's all the causes, but you, you really have a, a number of solutions. But it was based on not everybody ends up with PTSD. So what, kind of relate, kind of if, let's talk about that and then how that evolved into, you know, what, what you got here. Prism. <laughs> so, yeah. I have a cheat sheet right here. So. <laughs> Thanks, Ira. So about 20 years ago, the Department of Defense, specifically a couple of Army generals, summoned Marty Seligman, my co-author, to talk to them about PTSD. The problem being that so many soldiers had come back from Iraq and Afghanistan with post-traumatic stress disorder, and it was creating a a massive financial burden on the company, uh, on the country, and on the the readiness, the lethality of the force was diminishing because of this compromise of the mental well-being of, of the soldiers. And so the question was, how can we get better at, at rehabilitating people with PTSD? How can we get better at treating PTSD? And Marty's coaching and encouragement was to think about the problem almost in reverse, in that instead of thinking about what could be done to restore care to restore mental well-being for those with PTSD, which is an incredibly important problem, but one we've poured billions of dollars of research into, and we still have no cure, and we, we haven't made major progress on that front in many years, to ask instead, what is allowing the 80% of people, 85% of soldiers who don't develop PTSD, even in the same circumstances, to withstand it? And so the project then is really defining those skills that let us get through extremely challenging circumstances without harm. He also made the point, and this is something that's increasingly a focus of scholarship and studies, and there's whole books on this topic now, that just as there's post-traumatic stress, there's something called post-traumatic growth, which is that, that at the other end of the population bell curve, there are people who are so highly resilient that even when they are exposed to something uh, potentially traumatic, they're able to grow stronger, perhaps not right away. In some cases, it takes six months, 12 months, you know, to see those impacts, but they get more centered and they have a stronger sense of purpose, a stronger sense of motivation, greater clarity on how they want to spend their time in their life. And they, they describe coming out of those experiences stronger than they were going into them. And so we've spent a lot of time studying that highly resilient population. Uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb calls it anti-fragility, studying this idea of psychological anti-fragility and understanding what are the skills that help us develop an anti-fragile response if we accept as the project, as the job to be done, 
that we need to endure tremendous change and turmoil, not every year, you know, not every few months, but even weekly as massive global events are, are turning over entire industries. How do we accept that that's the, the job to be done, the biggest job to be done, and then build the skills to not only get through those challenges, but to grow stronger potentially because of them? So let's dig in a little bit. You, you, I, I mentioned the PRISM, your acronym, which is really the, the skill sets, the meta skills that are required. And, and some of them are going to be pretty familiar with people. We talk about adaptability all the time, talk about grit and resilience and mental flexibility. And, and so th there's part of it. So there's a lot of overlap in there. We're all trying to find solutions to a similar end. But the, the, your, the PRISM, I mean, you've done, you have a ton of research behind each of those. I certainly am inclined to look at prospection, which you can describe, but that wasn't the, the most, I guess, essential or that wasn't the most dominant skill that came out. So why don't you walk us through PRISM and uh, that'll probably lead us up to the break and then we'll come back and, and we'll, we'll continue on. Sure. So as I mentioned, we've spent a lot of, of money and many years now studying what are the skills that we need to thrive in this very unusual world of work and constant change, VUCA, et cetera. Um, and we've defined five skills based on studying hundreds of thousands of professionals globally in every industry, in every job function, at every level. They're summarized by the acronym PRISM. P is for prospection. Prospection is our ability to imagine and plan for the future. And in a world of constant change, prospection gives us a slight edge to be able to not necessarily predict, it's not fortune telling, it's about seeing ahead to a probabilistic array of possibilities and being able to position ourselves earlier against a wider, uh, a wider and, and probabilistically informed array of, of what could happen next. So being able to see around the bend with both greater precision uh, but also a, a greater array of, of possibility and act ahead of time accordingly. There's a lot we know about how we think about the future, about the ways that that can go right and wrong and where we can help people become better prospectors. The R is for resilience, which again is about our ability to bounce back from change. And at its most extreme, it's not just getting back to where we started, it's actually even growing stronger because of the challenge that we faced. And you can imagine what a competitive advantage that becomes for individuals, for teams, if each of these changes and challenges that we're seeing, and we see so many all the time, is strengthening us rather than weakening us or, or rather than just landing back where we started. The I is innovation, which we touched on. So our uniquely human capability to creatively solve problems in the face of to, in the face of, of novel challenges in industrialization, particularly in the in the factory heavy eras and geographies, creativity wasn't really a, a core work skill. You needed to be able to tolerate a lot of repetition, highly specialized work. Took a lot of creativity to invent the assembly line, but not a lot to operate it. And and now today, that's really dramatically changed. And we need to address and almost overturn a culture in which creativity was treated as a specialized skill and instead enable every employee to feel like a creative, 
to understand what it takes. There are lifestyles and activities that we can engage in that facilitate some of the mental inputs to creativity. There's leadership styles that are better for bringing out creativity. So a lot we can do there. S in PRISM is for uh, social connection. In particular, we introduced the idea of rapid rapport, which is the ability to build trust quickly across difference. And as we said, the people we work with, biologically, we're all strangers. We're not part of the same family, uh, so to speak. And yet we have to get to trust very quickly with our colleagues and with our customers in order to have access to that level of empathy and deep connection that it takes to do the job well. And then finally, M is for mattering, which is kind of a bare minimum amount of meaning and purpose we find in our job, a sense that it is even worth it for me to get out of bed and do the job. And in a, in a time where we often have to walk away from large pieces of work because they're no longer relevant, the environments change, the competitive landscape got overturned overnight, it's no longer a product we're even going to deliver, it creates these massive crises of mattering. What was I spending all that time doing? Why did I even bother? And that diminishes our motivation. And the flip side is if we can get really good at connecting to that mattering, at narrating mattering as managers and leaders, then that's an advantage to keep us motivated. So Gabriella, were there, and well, I know the answer to this, so it's a loaded question, but what was there a number one skill? I mean, for for listeners out there, is there one place to start? Because as you know, in my role, as I just love, you know, I, I would go to prospection, mm-hmm. you know, figuring out what the future is, anticipating your next move. But that wasn't where the strongest where the research really pointed. Yeah. So the 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 acronym Prism only works in that order. There's no other word you can make <laughs> out of those letters. But in the book, we order the skills in the order that we see them kind of layering psychologically and functionally. So we start with resilience, which is really the foundational skill. And if you don't have that resilience, it's very hard to work on any of the other pieces. Then we go to mattering. So if we don't have a a motivation, resilience is kind of the how and mattering is the why. If you don't have the motivation to keep trying, right, none of these other things matter. And the others kind of layer on from there. So social connection is really important for our well-being. Prospection and innovation, we treat those as almost superpowers, that when you have this foundation of, of mattering, of resilience, of social connection, what you can unlock in terms of these higher order cognitive capabilities is, is tremendous and inspiring and exciting. And we don't know of any ceiling on the potential for our ability to build those, which is Part of what gets me so excited to see what we what we can accomplish as a species as we learn to better adapt to this, the harder parts of this environment. Yep. So we're right up against our break here. But again, we, we're going to come back and we're going to dig into that a little bit more. But especially it, it's not only these skills that that you've been able to identify these meta skills, but it's also how do we transform how companies deal with this because there are people that are stressed and anxious and and may ha- be experiencing PTSD so you need to take care of them but I, I love the, the the fact is is that when you when you talk about growth mm-hmm. um, 
that you know really rather than focusing on which our society tends to do is you know healthcare is not healthcare it's basically care when we're sick uh, you know how do we start moving more toward growing and thriving than waiting for people to fall into the hole and then rescue rescuing them so uh we're going to be back in just a minute thank you for being part of geek skeezers and googleization today thank you gabriella kellerman for being part of the show. We're going to be right back. We're going to take a short break and hear from one of the sponsors and uh, stay tuned. Are your employees feeling stuck and just showing up for a paycheck? Is your workforce working harder to get back to normal than adapting to the future? It's time to help them break their addiction to certainty and develop a growth mindset. Developed by one of the world's top-rated future of work thought leaders, AQ Plus Mindset is a powerful tool to help your employees embrace change adapt faster and grow on the job conveniently delivered to any smartphone or laptop and easy to digest five to ten minute lessons managers can sit back and watch employee attitude shift towards growth and innovation in just 30 days are you ready to help your employees thrive in this ever-changing never normal world encourage them to show more grit resilience adaptability and unlock their potential the journey to a growth-filled future starts with a growth mindset Visit AQPlusMindset.com or call 484-373-4300. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. We're here today with Gabriella Rosen-Kellerman, author of Tomorrow Mind, and also uh, Gabriella heads up uh, Better Ups Labs. And uh, very exciting. So we've been talking about growth we've been talking about prism uh, we've been talking about the future of work uh, how to thrive how to grow and you know one of the things uh and and you wrote an article about this i believe it was published in might have been harvard business review but then it was also i think the final chapter in the book uh you, you talked about how organizations are getting it wrong <laughs> so when we talk about meta skills it says okay that's learning and development that's growth and development let's talk to hr let's see where the money is and they'll build it into their programs into their skill programs they'll be put into the lms but it's ironic because the same skills are what we or, or the the same it's the same prescription <laughs> that we work with where people who are depressed have ptsd And it's like, well, why aren't they working together? But it comes out of different budgets, different silos, different mindsets, different metrics. Please address that. Thank you so much for the question. I love to talk about this part of the book. So this is not the first time it's been hard for people to cope with a labor transformation. It's not even the first time it's been hard for people to cope with a labor transformation while companies have existed. So the corporation is, you know, it's a, a modern invention, so to speak, of, you know, of the last few hundred years. And in the industrial era, corporations began to think about how to help their employees adapt and cope with this different world of work that was hard for us in different ways, because again, it wasn't hunting and gathering, which is what we're, we're naturally adapted for. And so coming out of that era, 
there were two different sort of approaches to how do we help humans be effective in this industrial uh, world as a corporation. The corporation invested in two very different things that reflected the science of the time, the way they thought about humans as employees. So one side of it was the training side. So Taylorism, the idea of scientific management that we're going to make people really productive by treating them like machines and using principles of efficiency from machines to make people, uh, help people be as productive as possible in, in this environment. And that became the training department, the learning and development department was this idea of like, help people be more efficient like machines. That was the thinking of the day. And there were, there were psychological principles and behavioral science principles available they could have drawn on, but it wasn't, that wasn't the world of science and technology this came out of. It came out of really engineering was where that, that all started. And then on the other side of the corporation, you had this social welfare tradition, which saw that at the other end of the spectrum, employees were, were struggling in some cases, in some cases quite a bit. And one of the big symptoms of that struggle, particularly for employees who kept showing up to work, was alcoholism. And so that was the beginning of some of the sobriety programs that corporations sponsored. They realized, okay, people are having trouble adapting, they're self-medicating. How can we help them adapt better and overcome this specific scourge. And the EAP evolved out of a series of programs that was there to help employees with, with alcoholism. It was the same era as AA came to be. And there were some core principles that were really useful and helpful, but it was on the one side about kind of upskilling and treating people like machines. And then on the other side, it was fixing broken people, specifically people who are struggling with alcoholism, was the, the model and the mindset in that era, again, now, you know, 150 years ago, roughly. And the EAP came to stand for support and services for people who are really struggling, you know, and, and potentially in point of self-endangerment and, and crisis. And we have yet to overcome that legacy of splitting the two even though the challenges we face today are so different from what they were 150 years ago. And even though the science we have today, right, is so robust to tell us that even through the lens of something like substance abuse, there are predictors, there are risk factors which have to do with these core coping skills that we all need, right? It's not about fixing someone, it's about enabling all of us with skills to be able to cope with it legitimately very, very difficult world of work. And those skills are the same ones that will keep us from developing these negative outcomes and also enable us to be extremely productive, you know, tremendously successful leaders. Yet we continue to divide them, the responsibility for addressing those issues between two departments with very different goals and very different, again, budgets. They're held accountable for very different things rather than thinking of it in the way that scientifically makes sense as an integrated problem. So, Gabrielle, what, what's the solution? I mean, you know, I mean, we can talk about an organizational change and a shift. You know, I know BetterUp is, is certainly at the forefront of, of trying to get this to happen. So what's, what's the conversation look like um, when you approach uh, CEO, senior management, CHRO about, make, you know, doing something different? Yeah. 
Um, so I think there, you know, there's a good number of CEOs and CHROs who get conceptually that this this makes sense, and who can at least theoretically follow it to its logical conclusion, which is that you need to address this holistically through the lens of let's call it workforce readiness. You could call it employee resilience. You know, there's there's terms that encompass sort of the whole span of what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and that embedding these core skills of adaptability, of resilience, of mattering, that is an essential project for the overall success of the corporation. So if you were starting from scratch, how would you do it, right? You would have one team, one organization that's responsible for that. They would have leading metrics, which were things would be things like developing resilience as measured by different psychometric scales. And then you have lagging metrics that go all the way out to corporate performance. Um, we have so much science to show how these things actually predict out to even stock price now. Uh, some awesome work by Jan Emanuel Deneb out of uh, the Wellbeing Research Center in Oxford showing you can predict stock price by levels of employee resilience and well-being. Um, and so that's the level at which it really should be managed properly, you know, from a um, fiscal responsibility standpoint, even it would be these these dashboards with leading indicators and lagging indicators, um, and yeah, you should see as a result of that lower healthcare spend on mental health treatments and inpatient and, and all of those pieces, and that can be tracked as well. But you also should see greater competitive advantage for the workforce overall, greater learning agility, uh, you know, faster speed to adopt new technologies higher degrees of innovation coming out of all of it. And those are neither leading nor lagging. They're sort of somewhere in between um, medium term outcomes that, that you can be tracking as well. Gabriella, yeah. how much of this should be taught in schools? Mm, I love that question. I wish it could, I wish it could all, everything developmentally appropriate could be taught in schools. I, you know, again, from a previous, previous eras of, of social woes, we have something called physical education schools to keep our kids physically active, right? Why don't we have a social and emotional education, at least the period that you were, you're in twice a week, the same way as you are for physical education. I think that there are a lot of schools that try to embed the sort of social and emotional pieces in into the fabric of the classroom and that and that's great and I think is important. But if we're actually looking to teach these skills, it, it does need some devoted time and some personalized approach. So, you know, I, I think that it, it's also not totally fair to expect a teacher of a classroom of 26 kids to be able to instill these resilience skills is, is just part of how they teach math. You know, that like this, this is hard to do. It's hard to learn. It takes a lot of patience. So we need, we do need more, I think, funding and specialized support for it. So it's not just one more thing that classroom teachers are expected to do. So what, what does it look like? You know, you work with BetterUp works with many, many companies. So what, what does it look like within companies? What, what are some of the programs that they're offering? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we, we work with the entirety of an organization. Some companies were, were more focused on leaders, but ideally we're, we're actually giving some form of coaching to every employee in the organization. And if you're an individual contributor versus a manager versus a senior leader, that's going to look different. Your problems, your challenges are, are going to look different. And so, you know, we're, we're, we teach different things, we coach on different things, but everyone has the opportunity to work with expert coaches to develop these core workplace skills. 
if you come in and your tank of gas is on empty, you know, you're on the verge of burnout and you're super stressed, right? That's where the coach is going to work with you is exactly there. Let's refill the tank and then we can work on all this other stuff. If you come in and you're doing pretty well in terms of your level of well-being and resilience, well, then we can start to work on things like prospection, creativity, advanced leadership skills, etc. The one-on-one human relationship is still the most effective way that we have to build these skills in a sustainable way, you know, in a way that that's going to result in in lasting behavioral change. That's not because we haven't been able to show that you could do it without a human, but it's the difference between effectiveness and um, efficacy, which is sort of a, a a nerdy term for your your the geeks <laughs> part of your geek skeezers and Googleization. And it's like there are things you can do that work under perfect conditions, right? Where someone does shows up every day and does that webinar and clicks 13 times on the app. You know, people just don't do that. They do show up to work with a coach. They do show up to share what they're struggling with and to hear that person's expert insights into into how they're evolving and, and what they should be thinking about and to, to build growing self-awareness of where they're at. Now, as we're working with all those folks, we're measuring a lot of things. And in aggregate, we're then able to surface, even from day one, as we start working with people, okay, for this organization, where are your hotspots? Where are the areas that are really struggling in the organization? What are the problems that you knew about that we can see showing up in specific ways in the data? And what are problems you didn't know about that we can help you get ahead of now because we're, we're seeing it in the data? And then how can we show this progress, again, at the individual level, at the team outcomes level? Um, there are different productivity outcomes we can look at, things like quota attainment for sales reps, which improves dramatically when you go through the, the coaching like that, or quality scores for our healthcare systems, you know, industry-specific outcomes that you can drive and you can watch the change, the stages of change um, as you build up the robustness of the workforce and the resilience of the workforce and then see it kind of carry out in the value chain. You know, we, we've talked a lot about the connectivity. You've talked, you know, one of you, one part of the prism is social connection. But we're in this world where there's huge debate. In fact, I just heard last night uh, Mark Benioff uh, from uh, Salesforce talking about remote hybrid work, mm-hmm. you know, return to the office. There's this whole debate going on. So when, when you're talking about coaching, and, and, and I know this is probably going through the minds of people that are listening, is like, well, we're remote. So how do we build that connectivity? Or vice versa, people are saying, see, here's another reason that we need to be people back because we have to do face-to-face coaching. Ah. Um, I can't imagine that all the coaching that you're talking about has to be face-to-face. Yeah, actually, almost none of what we do is face-to-face. It's vir- done virtually and, uh, and, and, and some people effective. extremely and, and- effective. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you're, the, the pool of coaches you're choosing from is much, much larger. It's much more than much more targeted to your needs, your specific environment, the, the background that's going to be most helpful to you. Um, we can do it in any language. We can do it in any time zone. We have specialty verticals, so you can access parenting coaching and sleep coaching, you know, that, that full array. You just can't do that in person today. So what we're able to pull together. The other thing that's cool is we do some group coaching, both across companies and within coaching, within companies. But within COVID, this became really popular when people weren't seeing each other. 
and you could have employees on different continents who didn't even know each other before who now can work together with a coach on, for example, building resilience or working on topics like inclusion and belonging. There's peer learning that happens. There's relationship building, trust building that happens even as the group is together learning these skills. Gabriella, we're going to start moving toward the, the later segments of our show now and kind of take a little bit a little bit of a different turn here. This segment we call Hopes and Fears. And so quite simply, the, the question on this segment is, what are your hopes for the future and what are your fears for the future? So uh, I guess I'll start with my fears and then I'll, tr- I'll flip it over to the hope side. So I think that, you know, I, the, the, the things you guys have been talking about for a long time, the things I've been thinking about for a long time have come to a broader consciousness through the recent developments in AI. And I hear and see, you know, so many people for the first time really, really understanding the level of displacement that is inevitable with some of these new AI tools. And my fears are that we as a, as a society are not able to adapt quickly enough to the social implications of that displacement. And we see a lot of human suffering that you know, I, I do think can be avoided um, if we're thinking prospectively and using the available information about what is almost inevitable at this point in terms of the, the struggles that we'll see and all of the different possible solutions that are out there that you know, lots of people in our field, my, myself included, are trying to contribute to helping to, to advance those solutions. My hope is that we are able to come together around that opportunity to look at AI as what are all of the extremely important things that can open up for us in terms of providing services to those who couldn't get it, in terms of eliminating jobs that were not great to begin with, and, and using it for good while also taking care of the people who are going through tremendous change and building up more of a social network and social fabric to support people through these massive uh, professional shifts, which again, they're just going to keep happening, right? So this is to me an opportunity to build up a capability as a civil society that we don't really have, right? That, you know, maybe partially is, is played by by corporations as people leave, partially played by labor unions where they exist, but they were formed for very different reasons in, in some cases. And how do we create that support network and that fabric of constantly available upskilling, social support, coaching that we all need when we're in between these, these major transformations in our own careers? And we've covered a lot today together, Gabrielle, and with our audience, but what's something we should have asked you that we didn't? Great question. I guess one thing that that's worth asking is, you know, what we use this metaphor of the whitewater. And why is that a, a metaphor that we think is helpful to people? And what, what do we hope it contributes to the conversation? So shall what I is, answer? What is the, <laughs> yeah, what is the whitewater metaphor? And why is it important in terms of what it contributes to people in the future work? Yeah, so it, it comes from John Seeley Brown, who I mentioned earlier in the conversation, is a, a futurist and just brilliant thinker and, and his writing partner, Ann Pendleton Julian. And they use the metaphor that we've gone from a world of work where you sort of boarded a, 
you know, a massive uh, steamliner and crossing the Pacific as, as your career trajectory to then maybe our parents was more like being in a sailboat and tacking against the different tides. And now today we're really alone as kayakers in the white water up against these riptides that you know, only we can see in some cases that are constant, right, that just keep coming at us. And often when we're coaching people, when we're talking about what's on their mind, what you hear about is the rapids that we're in at the moment. You hear it's it's all consuming. It's just, I just got to get through this phase of turbulence, right? But guess what? Like it's, it's a whitewater career. And when you get through it, there's going to be more. And that on the one hand is very sobering to think that the entirety of our careers is these rivers of rapids. On the other hand, if we accept that, when we accept that, the prospect and the project of preparing for that looks totally different than feeling like it's just about getting through this immediate set of rapids. We need very different skills. It's very centering. It gives us a certain perspective on the job to be done. And so to us, it's embracing that metaphor is almost step one in the hero's journey of learning to live on the white water. Perfect. And so, we're to our final segment. I can't believe the, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ira. I was just going to say, we're going to lead into the, into the uh, lightning round. <laughs> so a couple of things here. We're going to learn a little bit more about Gabriella. Appreciate there's so much more we can go into. And as I said earlier, love to have you back and dig into each of these, <laughs> in each of these chapters a little bit more. But what is a favorite song or favorite band that you have? I love this question because I just saw them in concert earlier this week after many years of not seeing them. So my favorite band is the Counting Crows. The Counting Crows are from Berkeley, California, where I'm from. And we were in some ways contemporaries. And I realized I've been fans of them for 30 years, which is just <laughs> wild. But uh, their music has seen me through all kinds of chapters of, of my life and was even the first music that some of my kids heard as they were born into the world. So I have a very deep connection to uh, to that band and, and that music. Yeah. Well, well that, that they're a first for us. No one's <laughs> mentioned that before out of 300 and some guests. But they actually did just play uh, locally. We're in uh, Lehigh Valley and they played at the Music Fest this summer. So didn't get to see them, but very good. Let's see. What would some, you know, okay, 30 years graduate, if you go back to reunion, what, what would some of your classmates be most surprised about you now? Interesting question. Well, I have five kids, so I think that tends to be surprising. It's more <laughs> than most people do. I think that that might be surprising. Yeah, you're, you're shifting the fertility rate. <laughs> <laughs> I know, me and Elon Musk. <laughs> So, excellent. What is, I, I guess, I, in, in your research and, and things, what, what's, a, what's a book that you've read beyond Tomorrow Mind, but what's a book that you've read that's uh, really impacted you? Ah, gosh, there's so many. So I think, I mean, something I always go back to conceptually when thinking about interpersonal dynamics is Martin Buber's I and Now. Um, so, you know, some pretty fundamental philosophical thoughts about how we treat other people, the ways we can objectify versus subjectify others that rings true phenomenologically, rings true in terms of how I have always experienced, a, you know, 
the ways I sometimes treat people versus I want to treat people and has influenced a lot of the, the thinking on how we can get to deeper layers of, of relationships by shifting into different mindsets. Another one I'll mention is Behave by Robert Sapolsky, which is just a treasure trove of information and breadcrumbs on modern neuroscience and neuroendocrinology and recommend it for, for anyone looking for a, a short undergraduate level course in the, in the topic. Just read that book. Well, I'll definitely have to look that up. I actually, uh, in over the summer, I, I took a course uh, at Wharton, an executive program on uh, the impact of neuroscience on business results. So cool. very much, very much top of mind work with Michael Platt, who will be a guest in the upcoming future, uh, Paul Zach. I don't know if you know Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, met, sure. I, I met him indirectly through that. And he's actually uh, a couple of weeks from now, uh, he's going to be on the show. Oh, so we'll be, we'll, be, we'll be going down this rabbit hole of neuroscience. <laughs> so, but it's it's been wonderful to to formally meet. Really appreciate you carving out the time. Now you got a million things going on, especially with five kids and and uh, being heading up better lap, better up left. What's the best way for people to reach out to you if if they want to connect with you? Great. So um, if you're reaching out to me personally, I have a website, GabriellaRosenKellerman.com. And if you're curious about BetterUp, it's just BetterUp.com. There's a ton of information on there uh, that you can check out. Yeah, and and great research um, that comes out of there. Uh, please connect with them. Follow them on LinkedIn uh, if you're on LinkedIn. Uh, they're just a treasure trove of that. And as I said a few times during the show, Gabrielle, I really appreciate you being here. Whatever you're working on, if there's something you want to get out, please reach out to us. Uh, and if you just want to chat someday about uh, social connection or resilience or perspection, love to have you back. Yeah, thanks Absolutely. so much. It, it, it's, it's been a pleasure uh, having you on the show. Thanks. Thanks, Ira. Thanks, Jason. Okay, take care. So a couple of the takeaways that I can share, you know, from that, and uh, I'll hopefully speak for Jason as well. As I, I mentioned at the top of the show, Tomorrow Mind is, you know, certainly uh, one of the, the best books. I'd, I'd highly recommend people going out and get it. What I guess the one major takeaway, uh, and we've heard this from a number of other people, but BetterUp's got some of the research, is is the impact of well-being, the ability to predict someone, uh, the individual resilience uh, and social connection on stock price, on revenues. So one one stat that wasn't recommended wasn't um, shared during the show, but I know this came from the book. Some of Better Up's research was that organizations with higher resilience are three hundred show three hundred and twenty percent higher year over the year growth. So there's just a, a an incredible number of, of 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 reasons to be able to impact this, and of course the other uh, critical area. Uh, that uh, the critical takeaway that I guess that we were able to share with everyone uh, was the, you know, the, I guess the, 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 new, the better approach to combine both EAPs and growth and development. Uh, we're teaching much of the same skill, but uh, being able to focus on people, how to help them thrive, not only people that are doing well, but especially being able to provide people that are really, really, really struggling. And there's, there's quite a few of them. So 
but there's so many others. Hopefully you'll re-listen to the show and uh, hopefully we'll have uh, better, Jason will have better luck with his internet connection in the future. Uh, but we are thrilled to have uh, Gabriella Rosen-Kellerman on today's show, head, uh, the head of uh, Better Up Labs. And please reach out to uh, her. Please connect, try to uh, connect with her on LinkedIn. Follow Better Up and also follow, follow Gabriella and uh, purchase her book in one way fashion or another on behalf of jason uh thank you for watching geek skeezers googleization thank you for being part of googleization nation i'm ira wolf until next week don't let the shift hit your plans thanks for listening to geeks geezers and googleization this show was produced and edited by hilton productions